The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Munich, Germany this week. There's no Oktoberfest happening this year, but my colleague Ed Cropley and I are managing to sample some of the fine beers on offer here, in between meetings, of course. As you shall hear, Ed and I have sat down together for one of the first in-person Breaking Views podcasts of the post-pandemic era to discuss his views on airlines and airports, two of the key industries on his beat. It just so happens that Ed took his first flight from the UK this week since COVID hit on a nearly empty Lufthansa jet through Britain's biggest nearly empty airport, Heathrow. It was a vivid reminder of the challenges the travel industry faces as the world continues to grapple with this crappy pandemic. We also discussed his piece on the financial proxy war taking shape between creditors in the West and China over a reorganization of Zambia's debt. After that, we hand the mic over to Robin Mack and Yuna Galani in Hong Kong and Mumbai, respectively, to hear their takes on the rise of the so-called super app. In case you missed it, Yuna wrote a smart breakdown on the matter for Breaking Views, which ranked as one of our best pieces of the week. Give a listen. Ed Cropley, good to see you. I think this is the first time that I've actually been able to sit down with another Breaking Views columnist in months. It's great to get out of the house, Rob. Yes. Uh, and it's great to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. Uh, the pandemic has done you well. <laughs> I, I'm feeling right. You're, you're looking very good as well. Um, so, but to do this, I mean, just dear listener, we're in Munich where we're going and seeing a bunch of companies and contacts. Um, you, of course, had to brave... Uh, Heathrow Airport and or British Airways or or Lufthansa oh, to Lufthansa, get here. Lufthansa. Yes. Now, as our, of course, as our as our airlines columnist, what was your experience for having your first trip in the air since uh, COVID nineteen struck? Well, uh, say, saying braving Heathrow Airport or braving Lufthansa, actually, it's probably one of the safest and easiest times I've ever had going through an airport, um, which is great for passengers who who do need to travel and do want to travel, but. Um, it's still a very bizarre experience. Because there's nobody there. There's nobody there. So, so um, Heathrow Airport, 8 o'clock in the morning. Normally, you're going to have long lines at the coffee queue. You're going to have um, people doing a bit of last-minute shopping for boarding. Um, half the shop's still boarded up. Um, one in every two seats is saying, don't sit here, public right. health, etc. Um, and then you get onto the plane. Um, so this is a flight from you know, Heathrow to Munich this morning in Lufthansa. Um, 200-odd seater plane, maybe 30, 40 people on that plane. Oh, my Lord. Um, Lufthansa, of course, says, you know, we've we've cut our operations right down to the bone. We're only focusing on profitable routes. But, you know, there's no way that you can break even on, on a... So this just this, this brings it right, you know, all the articles you've been writing, all the columns you've been writing about Lufthansa and British Airways and everybody else, Virgin, Atlantic. I mean, you've been writing about these. Now you get to see it face-to-face. I mean, let's start with Heathrow. I mean, Heathrow itself is a interesting financial story. Well, Heathrow is fascinating because uh, at the start of this year, um, they had a significant setback when you know, they got big plans to expand. They want to build a third runway, um, you know, as was many of these airport expansion pr- um, projects. And this is a big, it's owned by a consortium it's of by infrastructure m- many, investors. Uh, and, very often Spain, right. but also a Chinese investment fund. And so, you know, large multinational consortium of, of institutions right. with a stake in Heathrow. And they want to grow the airport long term. It's 
you know, anybody who's flown through Heathrow knows that the constraints at the various terminals uh, are under. Um, so in January, this all made perfect sense. Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, they got knocked back by the UK courts because it seemed that the, the uh, application for the planning authorities didn't take proper cognizance of the UK's commitments um, to reduce carbon, uh, national carbon emissions. Right, right. Um, in line. So does that mean they've got a lucky way out then of having to make a huge investment that may not pan out? Well, well, that's one way of looking at it. But Heathrow, in the meantime, have just gone and lodged an appeal against this, this court ruling saying, no, 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 we, we still really want to build this third runway. Um, and, you know, that's pretty punchy at the current environment. Um, possibly in seven, eight years' time. Which is what it'll take. It'll right, take a long build. time. I mean, building a third runway involves flattening one village, essentially, <laughs> uh, on the outskirts of the current, the current uh, footprint of the airport. So this is going to take a very long time. But even so, uh, coronavirus is going to be with us for one, two, three more years. Um, mm -hmm. And even beyond that, people will find alternative ways of working, alternative ways of traveling, alternative ways of communicating. Um, the, it looks like there's going to be some sort of structural decline in, in sort of air travel, in hotel use, etc. And you've got to question the sanity of wanting to build a third runway um, until we've got more clarity on on the long-term right. trajectory. Okay, so then that's the airport, and so all the now, of course, all the shops in there, all half of them are boarded up. And half the shops are boarded up. No one's up. at the LVMH or the Louis Vuitton shop or the. Yes, but. yeah, and of course, and I would have been um, shopping you know, there myself, not. Uh. <laughs> right, I mean, it was a bummer. You weren't able to pick up a, a new Louis Vuitton bag for your trip to Munich. Yes. Um, um, but I'm sure there's some open here. I'll satisfy myself with boots, uh, or, yeah. But then you then you ended up, you took the plane. So, of course, you've it's, you know, again, you get to see face-to-face, -face, you know, th what's happening with these air, air airlines mm, mm. that you've been writing about. And, of course, Lufthansa, as you say. Yes, so it's empty seat after empty seat after empty seat. Um, and there's no way at, say, 20% occupancy on a plane that you're not hemorrhaging cash on that individual flight. Um, your Lufthansa, in, in the, the depths of the crisis, was burning through a million euros an hour. Wow. Um, and, and, and British Airways owner IAG, across the British Airways group, was burning through similar levels of cash. I mean, that's an astonishing level of, of cash, yeah. cash consumption. Um, and Lufthansa says that they have radically reduced their costs and, and reined in that cash burn. But even so, that the, the most recent disclosure from them suggests they're still burning about 15 to 16 million euros a day. Wow. Um, so, you know, How long can they do that for? Well... I mean. if they've got nine billion euro, nine billion euro bailout from the government. Um, you're burning through seven hundred and fifty million, yeah. so seven hundred and fifty thousand euros an hour. <laughs> yeah, you run, you start to run out of that within um, a year, two years, certainly. Right, right, okay. So, well, now you're here in in Munich. Um, before we go and start drinking beer at one of the beer halls. You've got an interesting story you're also working on about uh, Zambia. Now, of course, having lived in Africa for all those years, um, you're not, you've, you've seen proxy wars in the, on the African continent. What's going on with Zambia right now? Well, yeah, fortunately, this is a, a, a proxy war not being fought with sort of weapons. It's being fought through, through finance. Um, although I suppose the consequence uh, in a global pandemic, the consequences for public health and indeed human life and well-being mm. could almost be as severe. Um, this is essentially between... Um, various creditor groups, um, either private creditors um, from sort of London, New York, wherever, um, Western governments and, and the Chinese government, all of whom are large 
and roughly equally proportionally split creditors to the Zambian government, which has basically is about to go bankrupt. Mm. It was already in a pretty sticky sticky situation before coronavirus came along. Then the virus hit; it had to elevate um, its own health spending, while revenues from copper, which is you know comprised right. something like eighty percent of its exports, copper revenues just fell off a cliff. Um, and so very quickly, it's hit absolute you know debt crisis, and and it looks like today it's going to refuse to make a euro bond payment, which means that in thirty days it will officially it would be default in default, um, which is very bad on that euro bond payment. That but that does that. There's other debt, as you say, the Chinese it Chinese state of and Chinese Chinese state debt. So the Chinese are, are pursuing bilateral talks um, with the various creditors across Africa. So you know every other African government is going to be watching this incredibly carefully. Um, you know what ground do the Chinese government give here to, to give relief. Um, Western governments in, inside the G20 have already allowed a, uh, it's called the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, uh, which is essentially giving them a debt repayment holiday um, for the next six months. Right. Um, but private creditors who owe, who are owed just as much haven't got on board. You know, it's very difficult for them legally to get on board something that is only voluntary because they, they have a mandate to their own sure. um, fund holders. So the, the frustration is that everybody knew this was going to be happening. Everybody knew that this was going to happen even before the virus came along. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the mutual distrust between these various groups hasn't dissipated. Um, you know, the relations obviously between China and the West are are at a sort of rock bottom for, for a considerable period of time. And that mutual distrust has been allowed to fester. And now it's coming to a head um, Bizarrely, so in, in, in Southern Africa. Yeah. And um, the, the fallout is going to be quite, could be quite severe for, for the precedents that are set, could be quite severe for all sides. All right, well, that sounds like an interesting story. I look for that. And uh, in the meantime, let's go get some German Bavarian Ob- beer. October in Munich. There's only one, one thing you can do with really. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Mack in Hong Kong, and I'm speaking with Yuna Galani, who is based in Mumbai. And we're going to talk about super apps. Um, so it seems like everyone from Facebook's WhatsApp to even old school businesses like India's Tata Group is trying to get in on this super app trend. So what is a super app? How do you even define one? Well, it's I mean, it's, it's quite simple. It's, it's one app where you can do everything or a lot of things. So imagine having one app on your mobile phone where you kind of can mishmash together all the services of something like Facebook, WhatsApp, Uber, Grubhub, that's like food delivery, Amazon for your e-commerce needs, and then also like layer on top all your payment and banking needs. So it's literally one place where you can book a ride, order some food, play a video game, make an online digital payment, and do your banking. And And it's kind of hard to imagine if you're in the West, because, you know, we're so accustomed to using laptops to browse the internet and we have credit cards. So you just didn't really have a need for all of this stuff. But in countries like India and China and and, and vast swathes of Asia, actually, and even Africa, where people are coming to the internet first and foremost through their mobile phone and the financial system is still kind of a work in progress. I mean, it's just easier to have a single app rather than multiple apps to do things. Plus it takes up less space on your on your phone. And if you have a cheap phone because you're a first time user, then that kind of, uh, you know, that, that memory constraint is, is really an issue. 
Right. So when I so when I think of the term super apps, I actually associate it most with China's WeChat, which is the ubiquitous messaging app that's owned by Tencent. Um, that to me seems to be the gold standard. But I think there are, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of others, you know, across the region. I mean, I think that's right. Like Tencent is this sort of $700 billion Goliath that owns uh, WeChat, as you said. And then you've got uh, Alipay, which is part of the Ant Group, which is going to this $200 billion IPO. Smaller ones, Singapore's Grab. Now, both of these are claiming, and they really embrace this term super app. They use it in all their adverts. It's quite funny, you know, like mobile phones with capes on the back of them. But like, you know, they they claim to be, they each claim to be Southeast Asia's leading super app. I mean, the question of like who uses the term more than others is is, is interesting. But I mean, effectively, it all amounts to the same thing. So I guess the, the next big question is then, why does everyone all of a sudden seem to want to be a super app? Well, that's a great question. I mean, like the, the, the word has certainly is being thrown around a lot more um, at the moment. I think the main allure of being a super app is that, you know, it's, it's a way to have more users which you can monetize in some way either through advertising or charging fees to merchants or customers for services. But in these COVID-19 times, like being a super app is really interesting because, you know, if you just did ride hailing and that business has more or less died because fewer people are taking trips, then you have other businesses to fall back on. And so when you think about when you think about it like that, it goes some way to explaining why someone like Tony Fernandez is trying to rebrand AirAsia, which is like a Malaysian airline, into a lifestyle super app platform. You know, and it, and it, but then there are others as well, you know, like groups like India's Tata, which, which you mentioned earlier, you know, this is like a really old world conglomerate. Most of their businesses are really like pure offline businesses. They have groceries, jewelers, consumer electronics, hotels, the famous Taj hotels, luxury uh, luxury chain. You know, like I think they simply see an opportunity to like take this sprawling conglomerate and knit together all these consumer facing businesses, which are like you know deeply embedded in the sort of life of a middle class Indian, throw them into an app and see if they can extract some value. And at a time when sort of global tech investors are really hot on the India story. We've seen them we've seen them throw billions of dollars into the market recently to sort of jam up the valuations of Reliance, Mukesh Ambani's uh, company. You know, it kind of makes sense. You know, there could be there could be some sort of method in the madness there. How I mean, but how easy is it? I mean, I can definitely see, you know, someone like a Facebook <laughs> or a Tencent creating this one killer app. But, you know, for companies like Tata, and you know, even Air Asia, like you mentioned. I mean, I just don't really see that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's one thing to have a lot of ingredients, and it's another to try and actually create a killer app that everyone is going to use. I mean, the conventional logic goes to build a super app is that you need one or two of the following services as your core service. You either need messaging, e-commerce, payments or even like logistics and, and and the rationale is because essentially these are services that people are likely to use one or multiple times during a day because you know once you have that it's easier to hook in users and then offer them more services to keep them in the app for longer eventually with the objective of somehow monetizing all of those all of those people so i think you know, I mean, it is, it's is—it's a bit of a stretch to think that AirAsia is going to be like the next big super app. Uh, uh, maybe the Tatars can do it. I don't know. 
but there are others too. I mean, like, you know, there are others who are not using the word super app who are effectively trying to go in that direction. Like, look at WhatsApp. This is like the, you know, hugely, wildly popular messaging service in Asia. And they, if you look at what, and, and around the world, and if you look at what they're trying to do in Brazil, their users of WhatsApp are now going to be able to order taxis directly from their messaging app. They're rolling out payments in India. They might do the same. They might do a partnership eventually with Gojek in Indonesia. They've invested in uh, Facebook's, uh, WhatsApp's parent, Facebook has invested in Gojek. Uh, you know, they are tagging on services for a reason. So they might not be saying we want to be a super app, but they also have sort of got on board with this idea that the more services you can offer people, the more valuable uh, your app is. So I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, especially with sort of the different experiments that, you know, WhatsApp is rolling out in across different markets. And WhatsApp has always been, I guess, you know, like there was some criticism that, you know, because they weren't charging for messaging, like it could never make money. But do you think this is something that would finally be able to make WhatsApp into, you know, a profitable business for Facebook? You know, I think that is the multi-billion dollar question i guess i mean i yeah i mean look tencent and and alipay make money i mean you know this story better than i do but they make money through advertising um mostly relying on third parties to provide all these other services beyond the core thing that they might offer which is like payments or chat um but they've also been hugely successful because there's essentially like a duopoly of sorts as like in China, you have these two or three big giant tech companies and everywhere else there's a lot more competition. So, um, you know, there's there's a question of whether you can uh, make earnings and then there's a valuations question. I mean, you know, Gojek and in Indonesia and Grab in Singapore, they they are not profitable really as an overall business, but they are valued at something like 10 and 15 billion dollars. So, you know, you can see the attraction of wanting to get there. But I do think that even like what someone like WhatsApp as a sort of late starter to this kind of super app race, explicitly or, or inexplicitly, um, inexplicitly in this case, I think that just by virtue of the fact that they're so popular and so deeply embedded in the daily lives of of people, uh, especially in emerging markets. I mean, I get press releases on WhatsApp. I take phone. People don't even bother using the normal phone to phone me anymore. They just automatically phone me on WhatsApp. You know, they, they have a good chance. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, so, I mean, we've mentioned, you know, quite a lot of companies between, you know, Facebook and Tata's and AirAsia. I mean, who do you think then has the best chance to create the world's next super app? If you're going to push me on it, I'm going to say WhatsApp. But they would say that we don't want to be a super app, but I don't believe them. <laughs> okay, thanks, Yuna. That's really interesting. That's our show for the week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Auf Wiedersehen, and stay healthy. <laughs>